Spencer Balper, the Tijuana Brass. Carson Sestuli, this is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, joining us for his weekly appearance, mostly weekly appearance, is uh, managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And what it follows is he does uh, during his mostly weekly appearance, uh, what he does is to analyze all of baseball. What that means today in particular is giving uh, some particular attention to his uh, 10 best and 10 worst signings of the offseason or transactions of the offseason posts, considering at some length uh, Felix Hernandez's extension with the Seattle Mariners uh, and also what might come of it with regard to revelations concerning Felix Hernandez's elbow uh, and how that changes the language of Hernandez's contract. And also, uh, uh, to what degree the uh, signing by the Pittsburgh Pirates of Francisco Liriano, to what degree that does or does not represent a value for the for the Pirates in the way that, uh, for example, the Scott Feldman signing might for the Cubs or the Freddie Garcia uh, uh, signing uh, might for the Padres. That's all I'm going to say uh, for right now. Let's get let's get to the episode. It is uh, it is managing editor Dave Cameron on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, and it begins right now. I actually had a uh, I had an anxiety dream. Um, like you sort of early this morning that I had not uh, that I was um, it was a weird situation but for some reason an, a distant aunt like a like a, se- a second aunt that I've met once or twice she picked me up as I was walking home and she drove she was like oh, I'll give you a ride home but then she didn't um, give me a ride home and so I had to, I was missing my call and I also couldn't find my phone to text you um, so this is an this is that's what that uh, that's what last week's kerfuffle with regard to um, me calling on time or not calling on time has caused. You're now dreaming about me. <laughs> yeah, but um, not one of the good dreams. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, there's worse dreams out of me, probably. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I'm sure I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are many. Exist- Actually, uh, that would be, um, I don't know, I don't know at what point, I don't know what would be gained from it, uh, but maybe if I were going to write a horror story or something like that, you yeah. know. I also want to comment, Cameron. Um, occasionally, people will will um, make note in the uh, comment section of the these podcasts. Uh, they'll they'll make note of the sound quality uh, from your end. Yeah, sorry, I'm on a phone. I don't I, I don't know how to improve that. Well, I, I want to say two things about it. One is uh, we can maybe uh, we can maybe look at an alternate means of of, of talking, of in recording. Well, uh, but it should also be noted like, that. Um, well, it should also be noted that that's just your – that's partially it's just your voice. Right. Yeah. yeah. I'm just a, a horrible sounding person. <laughs> yeah. Staticky too, even in person. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Okay. Hey, uh, baseball is is um, what we're going to be discussing. Hopefully something approximating all of it or analyzing all of it. Uh, let's start – let's start uh, because you've just released the second half of your um, – of, of a, a, you know, sort of a pair of lists um, that you that you're releasing. Uh, the first the first one uh, you sort of did towards the end of last week that was the ten best transactions so far of the off season. Um, this uh, this latest one um, is the ten worst transactions of the off season. Now without um, I want to say without without treating any of them individually at least to begin with. I'm curious as to what we might learn looking at these two lists. Uh, what are some sort of uh, how we might uh, maybe um, 
infer your criteria for judging what makes a transaction successful or not? I mean, I think in general the hope is that a good transaction will push a team's chances of winning forward without costing them too much of their future. So the list is certainly slanted more towards, you know, teams that are going for it this year or trying to win and we're able to make an upgrade without paying too high of a cost that will hinder their ability to win down the line. Uh, but obviously they're good moves in the other direction as well. The raised trade of James Shields probably made it a little bit worse, but because they got Will Myers, you know, it, it makes them better enough in the long term uh, to justify the short-term downgrade. So there's definitely a, a balance between short-term winning and long-term building. Uh, I think overall the, the worst transactions uh, tend to be the kinds of moves where um, they don't help the team either short-term or long-term. It doesn't serve either of those goals. And the best moves are the ones that help you win without, uh, you know, harming you in the future. So right. So so the best transaction, in your opinion, of of the off season, uh, was the Nationals' acquisition of Denard Span, outfielder Denard Span, from uh, from Minnesota. Um, the Nationals gave up Alex Meyer, who um, who it should be said has a promising arm, right? Uh, but yep. uh, but is still. Um, you know, probably some distance from the major leagues, as as many young pitching prospects are. Um, and uh, and it should also be noted that Denard Span um, is not going to be making a lot of money uh, for the time that he's with the Nationals. Yeah, but I, mean, I think this is a, a situation where the Nationals just paid a lot less than market value for the type of player or the value of player they were getting. I, mean, I think Denard Span is a pretty comparable player to B.J. Upton, and they're both you know, three-ish win center fielders. You might like one a little bit more than the other, but there's not a huge gap between them. Uh, B. Captain got $75 million over five years. Span's going to get $21 million over three. So, uh, you know, the Nationals basically saved themselves $54 million uh, in, in terms of total commitment, um, and and all it cost them was Alex Meyer. There's no way you can think that Alex Meyer is worth $54 million as a pitching prospect. Uh, you know, obviously it's not a straight comparison considering it's three years of span versus five years of Upton, but the last couple of years of Upton's deal probably are the ones that are least likely to be, um, you know, valuable to the Braves. So I think when you look at uh, just kind of the overall return on investment, uh, getting a three-win center fielder for one low-level pitching prospect who's, you know, a good pitching prospect. I think Myers generally ranked in the top 100, sometimes in the top 50. Um, but he's not an elite pitching prospect. He's not a, you know, uh, guy who's close to the majors. He's not going to pitch to the Twins anytime soon. Uh, there's questions about whether he can stay in the rotation. You just have to give up one arm, uh, you know, good prospect, not a great prospect for a three-win center fielder and a team-friendly deal is, is simply fantastic and spans exactly what the Nationals needed. Uh, allows Bryce Harper and Jake Smith to play the corners. Um, you know, I think spans a, a, really a perfect fit for that team and um, makes them significantly better, especially when you were able to look at you know, the Spain essentially replaced Michael Morse, who they flipped for three prospects, uh, one of whom is A.J. Cole, who's not that dissimilar from Alex Meyer himself. So uh, I think going from Mike Morse to Denard Spain uh, is an upgrade, and the fact that they didn't really hurt their farm system in the process makes it a huge win. So, okay, um, being as um, polite as possible, Dave Cameron, um, being as generous as possible, what do you see – the motivations of the twins being in this in this if we take for granted that uh, th- that every team has some kind of vision what is um, how, how would the the twins explain this maneuver 
Well, I think the Twins basically said that their goal this winter was to rebuild their pitching rotation and kind of change philosophies in what kind of pitchers they developed. And, we, you know, the classic Twins pitcher over the last 10, 15 years has been, you know, Brad Radke or um, one of these, like, strike-throwing command artists. Doesn't throw that hard, kind of a lower upside guy. Uh, they've actually had pretty good success with it. They've developed a lot of good strike-throwing pitchers. Uh, but that's kind of been their modus operandi is having a bunch of, you know, soft-tossing command guys in their rotation. I think they've signaled pretty clearly that they're trying to change that and, you know, going after higher upside arms like Alex Meyer. I just think the, the problem is uh, teams that build around pitching generally don't win. I think it's, it's not a good way to build a pitching, uh, build a franchise. Pitchers flame out far more often than hitters. Um, I think in general it's better to build around hitters and supplement with uh, veteran starters on shorter-term deals than to try and develop a class of, you know, uh, five great young starters because three of them are probably going to blow up their arms anyway. So, um, you know, I think the Twins have simply adjusted and said instead of building around position players, they're going to try and build around power arms. I just I don't like that idea. Now, uh, when you say that it's difficult for a team to build around young pitchers, uh, of course, I could I could think immediately of an exception to that. Maybe it's not an exception, though. And, of course, uh, the Giants have won a couple World Series over the last four years uh, on the strength largely of, um, you know, uh, performances by Matt Cain, Tim Lincecum, Madison Bumgarner, all of whom uh, are products of the system. I'm curious um, how, how you'd respond to that um, in light of your, your comments um, to, to the effect that building around pitching, or especially young pitchers, is not always a great idea. Yeah, I mean, I think, that, you know, there's no strategy out there that can't work. Uh, building around pitching certainly can work. I mean, I think you could say the A's built around young pitching with Hudson, Mulder, and Zito, and it, you know, from a retrospective point of view, it's always easy to, to point to teams that do develop good young pitching and, and do pretty well. Tampa Bay obviously has uh, had a lot of success with good young arms, um, but I think what we don't see is all the other teams who tried and failed. And so when you're just looking retrospectively and you find three good young pitchers who helped carry their team forward. We're not seeing the, you know, multitudes of other teams who had, you know, highly thought of pitching prospects that never materialized. Obviously, think back to the Mets when they had Bill Pulsler and Paul Wilson and uh, Jason Isringhausen were supposed to be the next big thing, and none of them panned out. And, you know, I think there's more examples like that where, um, you know, the Rangers with Edison Volquez and John Danks and Thomas Diamond, I mean, you know, these heralded pitching trios, uh, you know, often don't work out. And I think... There's so much risk in, in young arms, especially young arms that are far away from the majors, uh, that I think building your franchise around those kind of high-risk arms is, is just uh, too much of a gamble compared to building around um, more predictable position players. Uh, now, with regard to your to your 10 worst um, um, off-season transactions list, uh, the, the worst of those is the is the deal – well, is the Marlins – I guess it's kind of multiple deals. Uh, the Marlins, uh, as you say, blowing up their team again. You discuss the deals in and of themselves, but you also point towards the, I guess the larger, um, the larger problem that the Marlins might be creating um, by, by their offseason moves, which is to um, to create some difficulty in the future uh, when it comes to acquiring free agents. I, I'm curious as to whether we've seen uh, any, another example of this, where a team, by virtue of its uh, moves in the present, has made it difficult to acquire free agents in the future? Yeah, I mean, I think there's no question that the uh, Marlins have hurt their credibility, and yeah, especially because they have a uh, franchise rule of not handing out no-trade clauses. Um, I think if they approach a free agent next year, even the year after, and say, hey, look, we've got all this money to spend, 
we want to give you a five-year, $100 million contract, but by the way, we're not giving you a no-trade clause. At this point, the bridge has been burned. Like, they were able to convince Jose Reyes and Mark Burley uh, that, you know, this time it was different. They had a new stadium coming. They had John Carlos Stanton. They were trying to win. Uh, there were enough pieces in place to convince people that this this was a, a change organization going in a new direction. Now that they've done it again and traded all those guys away and burned the team to the ground and are going to run out of a team on a $20 million payroll that's going to lose 100 games, no one's going to believe them. It, it was one of these fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice, shame on you. I guess I got it backwards. But, you know, the idea of, of once a uh, – There's a lot of shame, person, I think, is the uh, point. There's a lot of yeah. shame. Right. <laughs> I think once Loria has played this card before and, and turned his back on the essentially the promise he made to keep the team together, uh, even if he didn't give them a no-trade clause, I think the insinuation was that he wasn't going to do this again. Uh, I, I think until a new ownership takes over in Miami, free agents just aren't going to find there. They're just not going to be interested in, um, you know, kind of putting their careers in the hands of a person who's who's shown that he's going to change his mind uh, in short order. And I think, you know, premium free agents, I mean, they're obviously looking to get rich, but they're going to get rich no matter where they sign. They're looking for security. They want to be able to buy a home. They want to be able to put their kids in the school. Uh, they're really looking for an opportunity to just plant some roots and say, this is where I'm going to be. I don't have to worry about getting traded anymore. I don't have to worry about, you know, kind of the, the direction of where I'm going to be and, you know, whether I'm going to have spring training in Florida or Arizona. The Marlins just aren't offering people security anymore. And, and unless they change their policy and start handing out no-trade clauses, um, you know, I don't, I can't see a premium free agent taking their money. Yeah, so, so I was actually going to ask about that, and you, you answered it in part, certainly. Uh, with regard to the no-trade clause or um, – or, or not having one, uh, this is a this is a thing. This is attractive to a player because because he's able to. And I guess we overlook this because we think of them as players. Frequently, we think of uh, baseball as fans of a certain team. We want our team to get the best out of a deal. But I suppose for, from the player's point of view, the no trade clause, or at least having the assurance of not being traded, and the idea of being traded is unattractive because it's a uh, it's because he's a human. And he he wants to have some control over his future, which in this case, Jose Reyes, Mark Burley, um, Heath Bell, all in short order, they uh, their lives have been uprooted almost immediately after signing with the Marlins. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's no doubt that players value security and long-term deals. You know, they they want the ten and five rights or a no trade clause if they haven't been there that long. Uh, you know, they want long-term deals. They'd rather take seven, eight, nine years at a lower AAV than three or four at a short-term at a higher AAV. They're not necessarily in the profit maximization game as much as they are in the uh, get as long a contract as possible so I can keep playing baseball even if I don't necessarily deserve a spot. Uh, these guys generally want to play until they're in their 40s, and they, they want to have um, some kind of uh, certainty where they can buy a home and tell their wife, hey, you know, make some friends. We're going to be here for a while. Um, I think that the Marlins just aren't in a position to offer that anymore. No, and, and so you think that for the time being, uh, I mean, you're making this claim now. Is it possible that it could be erased from people's minds within a couple of years? Because it's happened before. I mean, we've seen Jeffrey Loria make make moves, you know, maybe not precisely like this, but we've seen him you know, clean house before, and yet um, there was a sense that things were different this time. Yeah, I mean, I think the new stadium was kind of the bait this time. So, you know, they had previously said, oh, we couldn't afford to keep our players. You know, we're having to clean house because we're playing this terrible stadium and one will come to. This time the bait was we have this beautiful new publicly funded park. I don't know, maybe not beautiful. We have a new publicly funded park. <laughs> uh, 
And I think, you know, you're not going to be able to build a new park every five years. I think at this point, the, the change, I mean, the Marlins will be able to sign free agents again at some point. It'll just be when someone else was in charge. And Laurie doesn't own the team anymore. Uh, and someone else can come in and kind of do what Hugh Epstein has done in Chicago and say, you know, there's a new sheriff in town. We're doing things differently. We're cleaning the house. We're getting rid of everyone who was here before. Uh, then people will start to say, okay, maybe the Marlins aren't the Marlins anymore. As long as Laurie is the owner, no one's going to believe him. Okay. Uh, Let's uh, let's move on to a, a different subject, one uh, in which you might have some peculiar interest, uh, owing to the fact that you yourself are the uh, co-proprietor, maybe full full-on proprietor of uh, of the Mariners blog, uh, USS Mariner, of course. Um, the uh, Felix Hernandez and the Mariners first reached an agreement, a, a rather large extension, and then maybe there were some questions about it, owing to health with regard to Hernandez. Uh, and then it looks like some manner of the deal is on again. Can you, I guess, uh, first of all, just bring us to the narrative and then uh, of of the of events, and then um, we'll figure out what this means for Mariners and maybe some other uh, Felix Hernandez and also other uh, pitching free agents. Right. So Felix is the, he's two years away from free agency. This is kind of the the winter where um, you know a lot of the premium free agents, Justin Berlander and Clayton Kershaw, being the other two. Uh, potential free agents from 2015 are um, looking to refine with their teams. I don't think any of them are all interested in making a free agency. There are pitchers, so they're, they're incentivized to get their money sooner than later. Um, and also, I think all three want to remain with their franchises. So we've been expecting this for a while. Uh, I wrote last month about how all three aces were about to get paid. Uh, I guess that Felix would get something like $150 million over seven years total, considering he already had $40 million left in, in two years. It would be like a 5-1-10 extension. Turns out to actually 5135, so he's getting about $25 million more than I expected. So I think this is, you know, more continuation of, of the idea of inflation in baseball and uh, the fact that there's a lot of television money pouring into the game and teams are willing to pass that money down to their best players. Uh, the elbow thing doesn't seem like a huge deal. Basically, they took an MRI at some point last week that Bob Nightingale said on Friday um, that something came up. It looked like maybe wear and tear. It didn't look like a, you know, an issue that would sideline him necessarily, but it was something for future concern. So now the team's just working in some language that says, you know, if he spends a significant amount of time on the disabled list with an elbow injury, then they, you know, some part of the contract wouldn't be guaranteed. Uh, the Yankees did this with C.C. Zabapia. The Red Sox did this with John Lackey. It's pretty common. Uh, teams often work in protective language for pitchers um, just because of the fact that they're pitchers. And, uh, you know, they probably have wear and tear on their arms by the time they get to free agency. Um, so, I, you know, I think Felix's deal will get done probably tomorrow. And uh, he'll be the highest paid Baseball. Right now, uh, whether whether it's a, I mean it's a five year extension, so that's it's essentially seven years from now. That's a long time for a pitcher. I don't think yeah. we've seen any deals for pitchers. Uh, I mean, in recent years, uh, for any longer than that. Uh, obviously, Felix Hernandez has been quite good. There were some concerns about his velocity uh, last year, um, but then in the second half, uh, he returned uh, to something like you know uh, previous levels. Not from five years before, but from the year or two before. Um, is this just? I mean, is this is is your analysis this standard analysis for for when you decide to sign a pitcher? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that you know, anytime you sign a pitcher to a long term deal, you're entering into a big risk. So there's no question. Uh, as you mentioned, the last time we saw a pitcher get more than seven years, I think it was Mike Hampton. We got eight years and 130 million from the Rockies like a decade ago. That obviously didn't work out very well, mainly because Mike Hampton wasn't very good, but he also got hurt. Um, but, you know, a lot of these other 
premium pitchers over the last few years who've uh, you know worn down. Obviously, Johan Santana hasn't lived up to his billing with the Mets because of injuries. Uh, Brandon Webb flamed out. Uh, even Roy Halladay, who's you know, maybe the most durable pitcher we've seen in a while, uh, starting to have injury problems. Um, you know, the Blue Jays are probably happy they didn't sign him to a seven-year deal two years ago and instead traded him to Toronto. Uh, so I think overall, uh, we know that signing pitchers to five, six, seven-year deals comes with a lot of risk. Uh, the problem is, at some point, you have to weigh risk and reward and accept a high level of risk to get a high level of reward. You just can't sign an ace pitcher to a three-year deal. It's, it's not happening. These guys don't sign short-term contracts. If you want to have a Felix Fernandez or a Justin Berlander or a Clayton Kershaw or this type of pitcher on your team, Zach Greinke, you have to give them six or seven years or they're going to go somewhere else. Um, so the philosophical question each team has to ask themselves is, do I believe that the risk of having a pitcher uh, under contract deep into the future is too high that I should just never have these kind of pitchers except for when I develop them internally and I have them for the first four years before I have to trade them. This is essentially the Rays model. They haven't signed David Price to a long-term deal. They're almost really not going to. Uh, we fully expect David Price to be traded at some point in the next year, probably next winter, uh, because the price for them is just too high. Hi, uh, Kitty. Yeah, boy. Here we did. The price for them. The price for them is... Yeah. Okay, continue. Sorry. Well, did I break up? No, it was David Price. The price, the price for them is much too high. Uh, you were talking yeah, about sorry, David you were, Price. You were making a joke. Well, yeah. you, yeah, I was recognizing it. Anyway, go ahead. This is an atrocity. Go ahead. <laughs> this, is, this is maybe the worst thing we've ever done. <laughs> go ahead. Uh, anyway, as, you know, the Rays have obviously decided that they're they're not going to pay the long term contract uh, for Price. Um, other teams, I think, have more financial resources than the Rays do and can make a different decisions. So I don't think we should just look at every long-term deal for a pitcher and say, that's a bad idea, it's too risky, they might get hurt. I mean, we understand they might get hurt. We understand it's risky. At the same time, having, you know, one of the three or four or five best pitchers in baseball, uh, pretty valuable. Now, it would seem to me the difference be- uh, between Felix Fernandez and the other two pitchers you mentioned, Justin Verlander with the Tigers, Clay Kershaw with the Dodgers, is that the Tigers and the Dodgers have – been good in recent years and uh, look poised to be good in, in the near future, whereas that is less the case with the Seattle Mariners. Uh, so the, the Seattle Mariners, though, they, you know, for them, Felix Hernandez has been, uh, has become, you know, especially in the wake of Ichiro leaving, uh, um, has become the face of the team. Um, so is this just essentially for them a, a necessity for them to retain any semblance of, uh, of uh, you know, a supporting group? Yeah, I, mean, I think, like, to me, when I hear the suggestion that any team that isn't expected to be an instant contender should get rid of their best players, I think that that's just not a realistic way to look at building a good baseball team. Like, I know people like trades, and I think part of the reason this has become so popular is that we have a lot of people, you know, several highly prominent reporters who Essentially, their entire job is to report on transactions and trades and rumors. Uh, it's good for them if there are transactions and trades and rumors. So they're uh, incentivized to convince teams to make trades and especially to uh, make blockbuster trades that, that bring in uh, a lot of interest and you know bring in a lot of attention. Um, so it can be frustrating for these writers when uh, the trades that they think should be happening or potential trades that they could be writing about aren't happening. Um, and I think it... it kind of pushes forward this notion that uh, teams, bad teams or uh, non-contending teams should be trading away their good players to good teams because it's 
it would feed this, like, cottage industry of reporting when, you know, that's not at all what baseball teams should be interested in. Like, you know, with all due respect to Ken Rosenthal, the Mariners should have no interest in making Ken Rosenthal's job easier. Uh, and they should be trading Felix Hernandez just because it, it feeds, feeds some kind of uh, MLB trade rumors wish list. And, and um, so I think overall some of the ideas about roster construction have been influenced by outside factors that really have nothing to do with roster construction. Um, and I think, you know, if you're a mediocre to bad baseball team, but you keep getting rid of all of your good players, you'll never be a good baseball team. Like, the only way to get better is to get good players and then keep them. If you just constantly are cycling through uh, and hoping that you have 15 lottery tickets hit all at the same time, uh, it might work, um, but it's unlikely to work. You probably are going to have to have good players and kind of take a slow, steady climb forward and um, you know, surround those good players with other good players. Uh, you know, even the Rays were constantly pointed to as, like, the right way to, to build a baseball team. And obviously we love kind of the way the, Roy, the Rays run their organization. You know, they didn't just uh, get to a point where they were a, a mediocre team and say, well, you know, we're just going to wait for all the prospects to develop. They went out and got Ben Bobrist. They went out and got Matt Joyce. They were constantly making moves for, you know, even guys in their mid to late 20s, uh, you know, who weren't necessarily super young prospects that they thought could push their organization forward. And, you know, Felix was a 27-year-old pitcher. For the Mariners to say, we're not going to be good at any point during Felix's next, you know, seven years. We should just get rid of him now. That's, that's foolhardy. I mean, that's kind of the, um, the the way to become the Pittsburgh Pirates of the 1990s or the Kansas City Royals since 1985. If you want to be one of these franchises that continually develops players for other franchises, then you can keep fighting away your best players every time they become good. Uh, if you actually want to win, you should keep them sometimes. Uh, would you think it's also possible that uh, perhaps this mindset is informed by uh, fantasy baseball, where where you can trade, uh, you know, you're incentivized to trade a, a player, a very good player, for a bunch of maybe smaller players, uh, because you also don't have you don't have uh, any of these ancillary cons- considerations, right? Like you know, uh, a fan base, or you know, and also there's a, there's going to be a lot more roster turnover because generally there aren't seven year contracts in fantasy baseball. Yeah, I mean, I think the idea of, of uh, fantasy baseball has certainly informed the way people think about it. And I do think, you know, uh, th- this kind of be good or be bad mindset also carries over from other sports. I think we've talked about this before, but, you know, in the NFL and the NBA, uh, getting a high draft pick can drastically tra- change your franchise. And so, you know, like the Cleveland Cavaliers getting LeBron James or the San Antonio Spurs getting Tim Duncan. For them, to being terrible, getting the number one pick in the draft, uh, led to massive rewards, and so being terrible is better than, than being mediocre and picking 15th. The Major League Baseball draft doesn't work that way at all. Uh, the number one pick is more valuable than the number two pick, the number three pick, but there's, you know, a huge drop-off uh, if you don't get the number one pick, um, and baseball play- prospects take a long time to develop. So the idea that you can just be bad, get a bunch of good draft picks, and then be good um, isn't really reality in baseball, and I think people kind of take over that mentality from other sports, apply it to baseball, and don't realize that you know, there are a lot of teams that have been bad for 20 years, and if they would have kept their good players somewhere along the line, uh, maybe they wouldn't have been bad for so long. Okay, uh, so one of those teams that has been bad for 20 years, uh, maybe maybe even a touch more now? No, no, about 20 years now, I guess, is, is the Pittsburgh Pirates. You mentioned them by name. Uh, um, and I wanted to ask you about this deal. I know that you have championed um, the idea. Uh, we talked about it last week with regard to Freddie Garcia. You've championed the idea of teams um, signing – uh, who are considered uh, pitchers who are considered maybe damaged in some way. You've also said um, good things about the Cubs signing of um, 
uh, Scott Feldman, and uh, I think probably Scott Baker um, fits in, fits into that same category for you. Also signed by the Cubs this offseason. No, yes, so also signed by the Cubs. Uh, I'm curious with regard to the Pirates. They've recently signed Francisco Liriano, um, who has uh, been maybe damaged in recent years. Uh, has shown some problems, but has also uh, been brilliant, has had brilliant flashes. Um, and I'm curious for you if if the Liriano deal, if the Pirates deal with Liriano falls into that same category of, uh, uh, you know, uh, potentially damaged pitchers with upside. To an extent, yes, but I think the price they paid for him before this deal was reworked because he broke his forearm and uh, an offseason accident was probably – a little higher than I would have liked to see for a pitcher with his inconsistency. I think when you look at Brandon McCarthy getting 216, Liriano getting 214, um, McCarthy's recent track record much better than Liriano's. Obviously, both of the health issues, but you know McCarthy's actually been good. Liriano's been very up and down. Uh, it was pretty bad last year overall. Um, I think you know if you're going to pay 14 million dollars over two years, at that point you're not really getting into the super bargain category anymore. I know you're paying the same annual average value as, you know, a guy like Joe Saunders or, you know, uh, some of these more durable kind of reliable starters, uh, you know, where you can say, I don't know, if 150 innings of, of unknown performance is really better than 180 innings of, you know, uh, league average performance. Uh, I think, you know, on a one-year deal for three, four, five million, uh, you know, these broken starters make a lot of sense. When you're giving them seven million two years, I think it's a little bit less of a bargain. Okay, uh, Dave Cameron, uh, you will be happy to know that you have fulfilled your obligation to um, Fangraph's audio this week, unless uh, that is that you have something to add, something that we did uh, did not touch upon that uh, deserves some deserves some attention. Well, I think uh, pitchers and catchers report tomorrow, right? So this is supposed to be some kind of national holiday. Oh, right. Uh, or tomorrow would be. Yeah, I guess. Um, I, I guess for me, it doesn't really become real until. Um, until uh, spring training games begin, and that's we're still uh, what about ten? I think we're ten days from that at this point. Ten, twelve days. Yeah, I, I, I'm kind of with you. I'm not a huge uh, pitchers and catchers doesn't do a lot for me. It just means that guys who are you know are now playing catch, but a lot of them have been down in Arizona or Florida playing catch for a while. It just doesn't actually change anything. So right. when we actually get cactus and grapefruit league games, it'll it'll be a little more exciting. Yeah, and I will say, and I, I have a sense that you care nothing about this, uh, but college baseball begins this next weekend, and uh, for anyone with a Live, you can get a Live subscription from CBS uh, that will fill in the blank. So for my purposes, Cameron, uh, as someone who appreciates all levels of baseball and perhaps <laughs> maybe uh, other levels that are not the major league level, uh, it'll, this weekend – this coming weekend will mark the beginning of uh, baseball every weekend until, you know, whatever, through the playoffs. But I know that is of less interest to you, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I like the idea of college baseball, but uh, I, I will say that I find it less interesting than you do, mostly yeah. because I don't like 82-mile-an-hour fastball as much as you do. Yeah, it's true. I, well, it's not the 82-mile-per-hour fastball. I guess, again, I've we've spoken about this. I enjoy the, <laughs> I enjoy the different ways. At lower levels, pitchers are able to – be effective, I think, in a, in a larger variety of ways, um, and they and they maybe get um, uh, they you know they maybe get weeded out as they you know as they make their way up towards the highest levels of the minors and in the majors. But there's there's a more there's a plurality of means to the end of effectiveness, uh, whereas in the majors you know right. 
there are certain things that you you need to have, I think, to be successful in the majors. And when we find an outlier like Ari Dickey or like, um, uh, you know, uh, Brad Ziegler, or who who was the original Brad Ziegler? Um, uh, Chad Bradford. Chad Bradford, right? Th- those are huge stories when you know when they become. Uh, you know, if, if those guys are effective at the major league level, but there are a lot of there are a lot of Chad Bradfords in college baseball. Very true. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, so that'll be available. I think actually, uh, ESPN Watch uh, will also have a, col- a couple of college video, uh, college games this weekend, which is also of note. Uh, but yeah, and then right, and then the next weekend is uh, is actually spring training. Um, have you have you signed up for MLB.tv yet for this year, Cameron? I think I'm on like one of their annual renewal things where they just charge me every year and send me a bill. Uh, yes, that does happen. Yeah, it happens. <laughs> yeah, it can be surprising a little bit to see yeah. a $130 charge on your credit card uh, that you're yeah. not aware of. Right. But uh, I know are, – are you going to write uh, – I know you, you've had the last couple of years an annual MLB.tv post uh, where yeah. you, you make comments about uh, – I think especially the, the sort of absurd uh, blackout policies that, that uh, occur in Iowa in particular. Yeah, I think there's a few places. Iowa's one, uh, Nevada's another. There's some pockets where the six or seven teams are in the blackout zone and you can, you know, have half the schedule on a given day being blacked out. Uh, I, I will probably write something once again about my MLB TV experience. Uh, at this point, I think we've banged the blackout drum pretty loudly, so that might not be as large of a part of the post as, but I'm going to keep banging that drum until Major League Baseball comes around and realizes, uh, hey, these rules are silly. I think actually, uh, uh, it, one point for MLB this year is that um, um, I think the Fox Saturday games will be available uh, streaming. That's, uh, I think that they, that change doesn't go into effect till next year. I think um, the agreement they did with Fox is that they'll get rid of the Fox Saturday blackout in 2014, which is an improvement, but doesn't help us this year. No, it does not help us this year at all. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, then, uh, then I'm I'm still furious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Frothing at the mouth. Um, yeah, and and now what's the what's the service you use? You I think you switched to Roku, perhaps. Well, so I have two TVs in my house, which is interesting because I don't have actually like TV. I don't pay for cable or any even the local channels. So I have two TVs and no no way to watch channels. Uh, but upstairs we have a Roku hooked up to a TV, and then downstairs I have a PS3. Um, I use both. Uh, generally, I use the PS3 a little bit more, but the Roku is definitely more. Um, it's speedier for turning it on and getting to a game quickly. So if someone says, you know, hey, someone's going to know enter in the seventh inning, I can have it up and running on the screen within, you know, 20 or 30 seconds versus with the PS3, it's several minutes and sometimes the no hitter is, is gone by the time you can get to the game. Do you, uh, is, do you notice any difference in, in, uh, quality? Uh, not really. I mean, they're both hooked up to the same network. Um, I think the Roku maybe buffers a little bit more, but not dramatically so. Mm-hmm. Uh, the PS3 level is up to a slightly nicer TV, so some of it could be, you know, the, the quality of the TV. Right, right. Okay, cool. Uh, well, yeah, you have definitely fulfilled uh, your, your obligation. Uh, maybe stick around for one second, but in the meantime, thank you, Dave Cameron. No problem. All right, that's uh, Managing Editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. Uh, I'm Carson Stewart, and this has been Fangraphs Audio. Fangraphs Audio.